A reading from the book of Exodus. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now the letter of Third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health just as it is well with your soul. I was overjoyed when some of the friends arrived and testified your faithfulness to the truth, namely how you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the friends, even though they are strangers to you. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on in a manner worthy of God, for they began their journey for the sake of Christ accepting no support from non-believers. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we may become co-workers with the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing in spreading false charges against us. And not content with those charges, he refuses to welcome the friends and even prevents those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Everyone has testified favorably about Demetrius, and so has the truth itself. We also testify for him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. Instead, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk together face to face. Peace to you. The friends send you their greetings. Greet the friends there, each by name. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Wesley, and thank you, Grayson. Good morning. This morning, we conclude the two-part sermon series that I started last week on the Ten Commandments for today living out, believing the Ten Commandments, what it means for our life and for our faith. Why the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments together with the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer, these were the three things called the rule of faith, like a ruler that measures faith, that are sort of guardrails for faith. Ten Commandments, Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed were that which were imparted to those who were preparing to be baptized of any age going back to the first century. The Apostles' Creed that we as a congregation looked at last year through Bible studies and sermon series that in three paragraphs shares for us and confesses for us those three parts of our faith about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In short, the Apostles' Creed is a summary of the good news. The good news being that God has revealed himself to be our maker. I believe in God the Father Almighty. That God has revealed himself to be our Savior and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And that he has not left us bereft, 
but has given us the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the forgiveness of sins, etc., etc. And so the Apostles' Creed imparts to us, to the community of faith and to those being baptized, that here is God, the God to whom we belong. And then, many years ago, I understand that Village Church, you all studied the Gospel according to Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 6 is the Lord's Prayer. The words of which we'll be praying together in a few moments when we celebrate the Lord's table. The words which Jesus Christ teaches his friends and his disciples, our Father who art in heaven. A prayer which he himself prays. For after all, the Father who is in heaven is our Father. His Father and our Father, we are family one to another, a community one to another. In short, the Lord's Prayer is a language, the language of love. The language of how, how to communicate to our Heavenly Father about our worries, about our hopes, our desires, our, our petitions for ourselves, for one another, for our loved ones, for the church and for the world. And it ends, as the Lord's Prayer does, for thine is a kingdom and the honor and glory and power forever and ever. So there we have the Apostles' Creed summary of the gospel, the good news, the Lord's Prayer, the language of love, and then the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments that gives the instructions as to how we are to live, how we are to serve, how we are to love God and to love one another. We saw last week of how the Ten Commandments can be looked at in one of two ways, or both ways. One way is to look at the first commandment as the preeminent commandment. That commandment that says that you shall have no other gods before me. Some have argued that that particular commandment informs all the rest. That all the other commandments, that if you have God as preeminent in your life and in your faith and in all of your relationships, then all the other nine commandments follows. The way that we're going to follow it and that we have been since last week is to look at the commandments in another way. The first four commandments as our vertical commitment to God, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto you any graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That all those, the first four commandments as our vertical relationship to God, our commitments, our duties, our obligations to this living God who created us, who made us, who loves us. Today, commandments five through ten as our horizontal commitments, our horizontal commitment and obligation and duty one to another, to our human relationships, where God calls us to love our neighbor, to love one another, and as we'll find in Third John, to love the stranger. Please join me in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations and thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For it is in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Friends, these days in our home, as we have a rising junior and a rising freshman in high school, our home right now is in a season of discernment about college and university and SAT prep and all the rest, and maybe even, and also college majors. So let me ask you this, how many of you are economics majors, those of you who are in college right now? Three. Prior service, it was like two. How many of you were economics majors? Okay. 
three, okay. And how many of you would hope that your children, grandchildren, niece or nephew would be economics majors? All right. Not a whole lot of folks, huh? But I want to propose the angle at which we'll be looking at 3 John and these commandments 5 through 10 is through economics because I want to propose that all of us major in economics and that we ought to major in economics. Not economics in the Alan Greenspan way or the Ben Bernanke way, not that way. That all of us tomorrow morning or even later today after this sermon, after this service, and yesterday and the prior week are all engaged in economics. Because the etymology, the origin of economy is a combination of two Greek words. Of course, we have to have Greek in there, right? Right, Kirini, Kirini uh, was, in, was in Greece. So two Greek words that form the word economy, the word oikos and the word meno. Oikos, which means house, and meno, which means to disperse or put together the management of a household. See, to care about economics, remember home economics majors once upon a time, is to major in managing the household. And so, if you, like us, had chores or arranged for your children, your grandchildren, or members of the household to take out the garbage bin, or to walk the dog, or to load the dishes, you are engaging in an economy. The economy of the home. All of us, therefore, major in economics. The Ten Commandments is about economics. Not in the stock market way, although tomorrow, if you have a stock market, if you watch the stock market, we'll see those lines and where our various stock portfolio is. Economics, at its heart, is about managing the household. The Ten Commandments are instructions on how a free people, God has freed a people, has freed us to love God, to love one another, to manage the household of faith or the beloved community. How to relate one to another. Who is to do what? How we are to exercise compassion and love and, and generous hospitality. How we are to nurture children in the faith. How we are to pray with each other. How we are to pay attention to the needs around us. That's managing a household. That's engaging in economics. Sadly, this morning, as all of us, the nation of the world, woke up to two tragic news. Two tragic news that occurred in, in Dayton and then in El Paso yesterday, the aggregate of which was close to 50 people shot down and gunned down. In the case of El Paso, a, a young man who's being, who was shot to death before taking over 20 people with him at a shopping mall who before that had blogged and written an online of hate speech, anti-immigrant, anti-Hispanic, and all sorts of supremacist speech, and then putting that in the form of bullets. And less than 24 hours after that in Dayton, another 20 or so gunned down here in our nation. This is not about a political sermon as it is about to name a tragedy in our common community. 
to name a sad tragedy in the fabric of our national life, in the fabric of what ought to be a beloved community. Last week, I asked a question that Pastor Kevin DeYoung asked in talking about the Ten Commandments. Imagine what our lives, our families, our communities, and the world would be like if the Ten Commandments were followed. If the Ten Commandments were really internalized, not intellectually, although that's part of it, not just memorized, not just posted on our walls, but really internalized in our heart, in the fabric of our being, in the fabric of our homes, in the fabric of our, of our schools, in the fabric of who we are and who we confess to be. That perhaps, according to one of my pastor friends, El Paso was number 249 gun shooting in this year alone, and Dayton was number 250, that perhaps it would stop there. That if we paid more attention to what the Ten Commandments really mean, as we saw last week, that the Ten Commandments at its heart, they're not onerous instructions, though that's, you know, there's a little bit of that. There's truth of what, when the Psalm 19, and I invite and encourage you to look at Psalm 19 later on this week or in your own private devotionals, that when Psalm 19 uses the synonyms of testimonies, ordinances, statutes to talk about the commandments, it goes on to describe how these commandments, God's instructions, God's directives, are what the psalmist calls, it's sweeter than the sweetest honeycomb, more precious than gold. How could commandments be seen as sweeter than the sweetest honey? and more precious than the finest gold and diamonds. As we saw last week, it's because that these commandments are a love letter from God's heart to us and indeed to the world. That at the heart of these Ten Commandments is God's heart pulsing and beating for His people, for the community, for the world to care about what He cares about. Each of those Ten Commandments come from the very character and life of God. This is the living God who, as is introduced in Exodus 20, as it unfolds, this is the God who took a people out of Egypt, out of a house of bondage. And He desires for His people, for all those whom He loves, to be free. To be free from what? To be free from themselves from human hearts that are prone to violence, that are prone to covetousness and jealousy and deception and adultery. He cares deeply. Every one of those commandments expresses a part, or not a part, but his whole character and heart. He's the one who cares that his name would be honored and glorified. That's why he says, don't make any graven images. He cares that we get rest for our minds, our bodies, and our, and our spirits because he knows that our human tendency is to overwork ourselves. Honor the Sabbath, because he himself rested. God cares deeply about parents and grandparents, cares about all of our relationships, cares all about those who nurture us in life and in faith. That's why he says, honor your father and mother. God cares deeply about life, the gift of life. That's why he says, you shall not murder, or in other places, you shall not kill. 
He's a God of life. He's a God who sustains life. He's a God who cares about faithfulness in all of our relationships. Single, married, divorced, widowed, it doesn't matter. God cares about it, and that's why he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Because he himself is not adulterous. God is single-hearted and single-minded to love a people, to love a world that he created. He is not adulterous. God is a God of truth, not the God of lies and deception. He tells it as it is. That's why he says, you shall not bear false witness. God cares deeply about us being content. Not malcontent, not discontented, but content in what he gives to us. That's why he says, you shall not covet. Don't be jealous with your next-door neighbor's fancy-schmancy Maserati or their 10,000-square-foot home or their fancy-schmancy vacations that they post on social media. That's okay if you don't go to Tahiti. That's okay. Be content with what you have. Don't covet. Why? Because God knows what we need, and therefore let's be content with what he provides. Each and all of those commandments is an expression of God's very character. Therefore, a rejection of any of the commandments is a rejection of God's own heart. God didn't just issue this. He and, he and Moses once upon a time on the mountain just to have a spoiler of our life, to somehow drain our lives of all joy, quite on the contrary. In fact, those Ten Commandments is about restoring joy in life, that apart from those commandments, we won't know what it means to truly love God and to love one another, and the converse, to truly know what it means to be loved by God and to be loved by others. So we know all those things. We, int we intellectually know it. We somehow know it, maybe in a Hallmark card, maybe some sort of summary of the Ten Commandments, but yet we find it really, really hard to live out those commandments. El Paso and Dayton is but another 249th and 250th example of how we find it hard as human beings to live out those Ten Commandments. We don't have to talk about those examples of 249 and number 250 to know that the perniciousness of that pandemic, the pandemic of human sin, lurks in our hearts. What do we do about it? Third John, like Second John, is a letter about love. It is a letter about radical hospitality. In this case, the Apostle John, one of, one of Jesus' beloved disciples, writes this very brief letter to an elder named Gaius, who presumably opened his home to strangers. Strangers who were committed to Jesus, strangers who were on their way on, a, on the mission field, and that Gaius' home was a was a pit stop where he would open up his home and welcome them, maybe provide a, a nice bed. And We don't know if Gaius had a family, if he was married or if he had kids, but for argument's sake, if he did, he didn't care if his, you know, if his child's toys were on the floor or if, you know, if the kitchen wasn't to the Martha Stewart platinum standard of neatness. It was like, no, just come on, just come on. You know, I may not have the 
800 thread count Egyptian thingamajigger on the comforter, whatever you call that. 800, is that a good? Is that good? 800 is good, okay? 800. 800 thread count on the, on, the, on the blankets. It doesn't matter. Because what mattered is, I won't be anxious or stressed about whether this is neat or that, or if the wine is all nice and, and all of that, and, and decantered and all of that. The main thing is, I care about people. I care about opening up my home for people and supporting them, particularly on supporting them, because they're going to be telling about Jesus. And I want to exhibit the love of Jesus as much as I can in the brief hours that they're in my home. That's what Gaius is. That's what this letter is about. The writer of 3 John takes issue to another guy who's named Diotrephus. Now, we don't know about Diotrephus. There's only like a few words that describes him, but those few words are more than enough. We know about this Diotrephus. It says there that he really cared more about himself. He cared more about his reputation. He cared more about what maybe the possible guests might think about him. If Diotrephus' house was a little less than neat, if his lawn was less than manicured, he really actually was more addicted to himself. And the people were just sort of secondary. Maybe they were just sort of the ones who could spread his reputation as an extension of his wonderful goodness. He cared more about numero uno. And then the letter goes back again to another guy named Demetrius, who the writer of 3 John hears about because of his testimony or of his witness, possibly of hospitality. Let's talk about hospitality, shall we? The word hospitality, and here's the last Greek lesson. Hospitality is a combination of another two Greek words, philozenia. Now, you all have heard of Philadelphia, philo, love, right? And Delphos is brother, brotherly love. But philozenia, which is translated hospitality, philozenia, so philo's love, xenia comes from like xenophobia. What is xenophobia? Fear of strangers. Philozenia is the opposite. It's love of stranger. Hospitality, philozenia, is love of strangers. Oh, yeah, there are some O's. Philozenia. Are there any of you who majored or are majoring in hospitality management? Colleges and universities offer that now, right? Hospitality management, which is the hotel industry. And I don't know about you, but the hotel industry has nothing to do with the biblical vision of hospitality. Because the hotel industry is about profit. And in fact, the Harvard Business Review article says as much. That the reason why the hotels maximize customer service and to be sure that your bed has 1,000 thread count on the bed and that there's butler service and fine food is that they found, hotels did, that customers will spend 140% more in the hotel and come back and back and back when they find that the customer service or hospitality is extended. But hospitality at $1,000 per night. See, that's not hospitality. 
In fact, the founder of the Presbyterian tradition, the Reformed tradition, John Calvin of the 16th century, when he saw that there was a proliferation of inns, I-N-N-S, inns, hotels, bed and breakfast, in the city of Geneva, Switzerland, he was aghast. He said that the inns, hotels, bed and breakfast in Geneva, okay, this is 500 years ago, was an expression of human depravity. This is why. Because he said that if there was no sin in human hearts, we would open up our homes. We wouldn't charge people. We wouldn't charge people. We would just open up our homes just because that we want to extend love and hospitality and all of that. One year from now, one year from now, summer 2020, my, our eldest son, Daniel, who will be a rising senior at that point, he and I are planning and have been planning for two years. I'm going to be taking five weeks off from here. And he and I are going to be walking the famed Camino de Santiago pilgrimage, 500 miles from the Pyrenees Mountains across northern Spain to Santiago de Compostela, an ancient pilgrimage. Uh, there's five routes. Four routes go across Spain. One of them originates in, in Portugal and goes south-north. We're going to take the traditional uh, route from the Pyrenees Mountains across northern Spain and, heading, and ending at northwest Spain at Santiago de Compostela, where there's a cathedral where it's believed the relics of the Apostle James is, is buried. And during the summertime or throughout the year, there are thousands of pilgrims from all around the world who walk this, this journey. Well, there's no fancy schmancy hotels that we're going to be staying at, although they're there. That the houses along the way, the hostels and the houses along the way are accustomed to this ancient pilgrimage. They open up their homes to 10 people at a time, 15 people at a time, prepare a simple meal, and then head on their way. I'm expecting that some of them will be full, so we may have to just camp out right there under the stars. We need radical hospitality, more than ever. We need radical hospitality in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in the nation. Love of stranger. Love of stranger. Love of neighbor. Where we truly internalize what that means. Now, what is at the heart of it? And here's where we connect 3 John and Exodus 20. Okay? The Ten Commandments are not solely about good manners and good behavior. That's bad parenting if you think that it's just merely about teaching your children to, be, to have good manners. Because good manners don't stick. Because once they leave or once you leave that, that context of rule making and rule giving, our human nature is we will misbehave. We will misbehave. That what we really need, right? And this is where Exodus 20 and 3 John come together. Is what we're needing is a radical transformation that reminds us that by doing the Ten Commandments, it is because that God says to Israel and to all of us, you were once foreigners and strangers. That's what he says in Leviticus. He reminds Israel, you were once foreigners and strangers in a foreign land, i.e. Egypt. I am the Lord your God who freed you from that land out of the house of bondage. In other words, when we follow the Ten Commandments and we extend radical hospitality to each other, 
We are doing it because that's how God saved us. That's how God loved you and me. When he declares to Israel and to all of us, you were once aliens. You were once foreigners. You were once strangers. And God's response to that was, let me free you. Let me free you. Let me redeem you. Let me save you from Egypt, from that former life, from that former place when you were shackled to Pharaoh, when you were shackled to yourself, to your priorities, to your sense of self, your sense of the world, your, your viewpoints about your neighbor. Let me fix that. And let me teach you about love. That's what it is. When we extend love to one another, that's what we're doing. We're living out salvation. Because that's how God extended it to us. See, we're no longer aliens or strangers. The New Testament says we are friends. God in Jesus Christ calls us his friends. And we are friends one to another. So what do friends do? Friends eat. And that's why we eat. Some of you in, in the second service and even today when you were coming here, you commented on this shirt. This is called the Barong Tagalog. I won't ask you to say it, but if you want to, it's called Barong Tagalog. Barong is Tagalog for shirt in the Philippines. And I'm headed to the Philippines on Wednesday for study leave. It's my paternal grandfather's 91st birthday on Saturday. And then I'll be teaching at a seminary to uh, pastors and church workers. And as is customary, there's going to be a party on Saturday for my grandfather. And my aunt, who is already there, my parents will be there on Thursday as well. We're going to invite a lot of people. That's the way we do it. And that's the way we do it here at Village Church. That's the way we do it in the Judeo-Christian faith. It's about feasting. Feasting at the table which the Lord Jesus has prepared as he himself lives out philoxenia, love of strangers who are now friends. So from east and west and north and south, they shall come to table and feast at the kingdom of God, says the gospel according to Luke. All of you who love Jesus and who place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are welcome to feast at the table which he has prepared. And so, friends, join me now in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you call us as your friends. When we were estranged to you and to one another, O oh God, you, you pursued us with a radical love that never lets us go. Yet we confess, O oh God, that in so many places, such as in El Paso and in Dayton, so many parts around the world, both near and far, violence is not far from us. In fact, O oh God, the basic elements of violence is right in our hearts, where we don't fully love you and one another as we should. Forgive us, O oh God. Renovate our hearts, O oh Lord, in such a way that we live out the life of Jesus Christ with radical hospitality, with love for neighbor and love for you. Help us, O oh God. We come to this table, O oh Lord, seeking to be nourished by these common elements, these ordinary elements of bread and juice, that by it, O oh God, you would make us extraordinary people, not because of, of what we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done and what he continues to do for us by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
Father, hear the prayers of my friends here as we lift up prayers for ourselves. Lord, as we lift prayers for our loved ones. Lord, as we lift prayers for your church in every place. Father, as we lift prayers for our fragile nation. Father, as we lift prayers for the world. We offer these prayers to you, O God, entrusting these prayers and our lives into your heart. Hear the prayers, O God, of those who, are, who have experienced loss. Fill them with an overwhelming sense of your presence, of your comfort, of your strong love and peace. Father, for those who are in need of your guidance and wisdom for choices and decisions that need to be made, Father, hear us. For all of our children and young people, O oh Lord, hear their prayers and the prayers of their parents and grandparents. Lord, as school years will be starting soon, as some students will be embarking on college and university, Father, guide them. Lord, in all these prayers, we know that you are our trustworthy and trusted God who hears us. Grant to us your peace that surpasses all understanding that you have heard our prayers and that you are working all things for our good. Meet us at this table, O Lord, as we partake of this bread and this cup, that it may be the participation and communion of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Reassure us, O Lord, by it. Strengthen us by it. Nurture us, O Lord. And then send us, O Lord, from this table, empowered by your Spirit, to live out the life and love of Jesus Christ in all that we say and do. Even as we pray the prayer, using the words that Jesus Christ taught his friends, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is a kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen <laughs>